You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wise, Sherry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, J.T. Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm super excited to have Alina Gorokova on the show with me. She has an amazing new book. It's her debut novel, but she is not a debut author, and we'll talk all about that in a few moments. It's called A Train to Moscow, and what a fantastic book this is. Um, you know, we've, we have talked about some really great books uh, here lately, and this one – is uh, is right at the top of my list. I'm uh, I'm telling everyone about it. It releases on March 1st. When you're hearing this, uh, then the book should have been out for about a day or so. And uh, I, I I want you to run out, grab a copy, and buy one for a friend. It's it's one of those kinds of books. Uh, welcome to the show, Elena. Thank you for inviting me. I'm excited to have you, uh, Elena. We begin each show with the same question, and that question is. What is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? <laughs> um, well, I, I um, if I think back, um, I, you know, I was raised in the Soviet Union, um, in Soviet Russia, and uh, somewhere around maybe third grade, uh, when I was about 10, and in Russia, school starts at seven, um, uh, we were all young pioneers. I had a, a, you know, a red scarf around my neck like everyone else. And when I was about 10, I remember writing um, a story that was set in a young pioneer camp where we all went in the summers. Um, and, you know, I was I was creating some kind of a very um, young pioneer story at the time. But I have to say that we were raised on um, a wealth of uh, Russian literature. Even from the earliest grades, we read Chekhov, and Chekhov wrote a lot of stories for children um, that may not be known in this country, and and Pushkin did too. That's news to me. (laughs) Yeah, he he wrote children's stories, and Pushkin uh, wrote fairy tales that, that we read in first and second grade. So there was this um, wealth of literature, and I think everyone, I thought everyone wanted to be a writer, because how could you not? Right. <laughs> and, and then, of course, you know, at 14 or 15, I, I wrote poems, again, like all my friends. All my friends, um, you know, wanted to to be like uh, Yesenin and Mayakovsky and Pushkin and Lermontov. Um, so, so there was, I guess that's where it started. Wow. Um, so Elena, you, you grew up in Russia, uh, like you, uh, like you mentioned and immigrated to the U S. Um, h- how did that happen? Well, that happened when I was 24. Um, I graduated from the university of Leningrad, uh, and, um, I got married. I married an American citizen, um, and that's how I came to the United States. 
and the story was was you know I I majored in English at the university and I thought I knew English when I came to this country <laughs> and I <laughs> and I realized that the English that we were taught at the university was was British English well first of all so the vocabulary the pronunciation um and the culture itself, everything was completely different. And I also came from behind the Iron Curtain, literally. We knew nothing about the West. Um, there was the Iron Curtain, which was permanently closed at that time. And we, I, I really didn't know what to expect. I had no idea what anything looked like, what people sounded like. I didn't know what the culture was like. I didn't know any, um, you know, even common courtesy, uh, because in Russia, everyone is is very, uh, at that time, was 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 very much into, into him or herself, and people were protecting their own territory. You know, it was a totalitarian regime, of course, as you know. Um, so, so I was in culture shock for the first, um, not even months, I would say for the first couple of years before I learned how to behave and what to expect. And, and the notion of choice was overwhelming because in Soviet Russia, there was no choice. Uh, even in consumer goods, even in stores, you know, the stores had empty shelves. And if the shelves were not empty, they were filled with, um, you know, gray, gray shoes that mangled your feet, <laughs> for example. Mm -hmm. Um, it was mass production. Everything was the same. There, there was there was nothing to to choose from. So when I, of course, when I came into an American supermarket, an American department store, it was overwhelming. It was overwhelming. It was. Uh, it took time to get used to. So um, that's you know learning, learning, relearning English, learning American English, learning to write in English. I thought I could write in English, but of course I, I, <laughs> I learned I couldn't. And that took, that took years. Yeah. I, you bring up such a fascinating point. Uh, learning a language, uh, or, or shall I say language without culture is only half the story, isn't it? Um, I, I have a friend who is German. He grew up in Germany, um, but he became acquainted with English through American television and uh, and music. Uh, MTV, uh, especially in the in the 80s, um, was a, a great cultural bridge because you got uh, language, but you also got a bit of the culture with it, which then helps to to get the language right um, because you could be technically correct with the language, but without any of the context that goes around the language, um, it, it almost still doesn't work, does it? Oh, that is so true. So true. And uh, maybe, yes, you're absolutely right. That's why I was so uncomfortable for the first few years because I knew some of the language. I knew the structure of the language. I knew the grammar and, you know the sentence structure and and the tenses and and how to to spell most of the time um but but it wasn't enough because the culture aspect was completely uh unknown to me and um that's why there was this disconnect 
I could be linguistically, you know, I could say something linguistically correct and people would understand me. But I had no references, no cultural references. I had no knowledge of the culture. Um, and and that was that was this disconnect was very difficult to overcome for the first few years. Wow. So, Elena, you're you come to to the States, you you um, you marry an American and, you know, it's it's all culture shock and you're you're learning a new culture and learning the 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 common application of a new language that you already technically knew um so there comes a point when you start to become comfortable in your new life and your uh you you start turning back to writing and uh you began with a memoir uh called a mountain of crumbs where did where did that book come from and what was the um what was the motivation to to get that story out mm. Um, it, uh, it, it came very slowly to me. It, it took, you know, if I count the years it took to, to write that memoir, the first memoir, it's probably, it, it would come to something like 15 at least because, um, I was learning the language first. I was, I was learning how to, to write, uh, in English in American English, but more than that, um, I didn't dare think that anything I could write in a second language could possibly be published, but I kept writing anyway. Um, and at that time, the Russian expression is to write into a drawer. And a lot of Soviet writers or writers un, who lived under the Soviet system wrote into the drawer, which means they wrote for themselves they, and they put it in the drawer because they knew it could never be published. You know, the Soviet Union would never publish uh, that kind of writing, you know, dissident writing, writing about the gulag, things like that, uh, writing the truth. Um, so I was, that's what I was doing for a different reason. I was just writing it because I had to write it down. And there is a sort of this famous phrase that Chekhov once said, and it sounds in Russian, если можешь не писать, не пиши, which means if you can live without writing, do not write. And I think it's a very good piece of advice. Um, it's a fantastic piece of advice. Yeah, right. Um, but I found that I guess I could not live without writing. So I wrote these little pieces about my life, my recollections, my memories of childhood. Um, and I wrote them and I kept writing them. And then at some point, uh, and I know when that point actually was, it was um, in 2004 when I signed up for a memoir workshop with Frank McCourt, the author of Angela's Ashes. Um, and I was I was accepted miraculously into, into his workshop. Um, and that's when he almost gave me, it was a very small workshop, 12 people. It was a very intense workshop. And Frank McCourt was, a, you can imagine, was a marvelous teacher, marvelous storyteller. Yeah. Um, but it's almost in that workshop, he gave me permission to write. He said something encouraging to me that allowed me to think that my writing was, was not that awful and 
and that I could actually say something and write something and maybe even be published. And after that workshop, I submitted several of the pieces that I had written to different literary magazines, and they were all published. So um, that's when there was this breakthrough um, after that workshop that happened to my writing. And I now had this, you know, these stashed chapters that became the chapters of my first memoir. Um, and um, then it all came together after that, you know, gradually. And the first memoir was published in 2000, the end of 2009. But it did take all those years to get it together, to become ready, sort of psychologically become ready uh, to to submit my writing somewhere uh, to to an agent to find an agent, and then um, and I I really I'm grateful to Frank McCourt for giving me that permission for allowing me allowing me to write and for becoming my mentor. I I do consider him my mentor because of that workshop. Oh, that's fantastic. So after that book, you uh, wrote and released another memoir called Russian Tattoo. Um, I'm, I'm always fascinated by memoir because um, unlike uh, a, a biography or autobiography, which you know tends to cover um, all of a person's life as much as, as, as we can uh, realistically cover, um, memoir usually looks at a, a, a certain window of time. Uh, it gives you a, a glance into uh, a certain aspect of someone's life or maybe a particular time period or you know something like that. It, it's usually very focused. Um, when you wrote these two books, how did you choose – um, which parts of your life you really wanted to focus on? Mm. What what a great question. Um, well, uh, again, I, I'm, I'm going to quote someone. I'm going to quote Frank McCourt. And he taught us a lot of things in this memoir workshop. But one of the things that, that he taught us was something that he called hot spots. And the hot spots are those uh, times in your life when something happened that changed everything. After and after that point, you're no longer the same. Uh, so he his advice to, to us uh, writers of memoirs was look for hot spots, look for those important moments in life when you uh, changed, when or something changed you or something made you change. And he compared writing, memoir writing, to walking on a beach with a metal detector. So you walk, imagine you, you know, you walk and, and you have this metal detector and then it rings and you have to dig um, deeply. You have to go down to get that gold, <laughs> that right. important, important scene, that important moment in your life. And we all have to 
dig for it. We all have to resist ourselves. That's how that these are his words. When you write a memoir, you resist yourself. You go into an uncomfortable territory that maybe we try to suppress in our memory. But the, that moment, that territory, that or that event that changes you profoundly. And because it is very often difficult and painful, um, he said, when you write a memoir, you we stare down the monsters. We stare at the monsters and we fight our... Um, uh, the devils, you know, the word that he used were monsters and devils. Um, we have to face them and we have to deal with them and we have to put them down on paper. And only when you are willing to look into the face of all those difficult moments, difficult hotspots, that's when you achieve the truth. That's when you can write something that will resonate with your readers. Things We Never Got Over, the new book by best-selling author Lucy Score. Bearded bad boy Barber Knox refers to live his life the way he takes his coffee, alone, unless you count his basset hound Waylon. Knox doesn't tolerate drama even when it comes in the form of a stranded runaway bride. Naomi wasn't just running away from her wedding. She was riding to the rescue of her estranged twin to knock him out Virginia, a rough-around-the-edges town where disputes are settled the old-fashioned way, with fist and beer, usually in that order. Too bad for Naomi, her evil twin hasn't changed at all. After helping herself to Naomi's car and cash, Tina leaves her with something unexpected. The niece Naomi didn't know she had. Now she's stuck in town with no car, no job, no plan, and no home, with an 11-year-old going on 30 to take care of. There's a reason Knox doesn't do complications or high-maintenance women, especially not the romantic ones. But since Naomi's life imploded right in front of him, the least he can do is help her out of her jam. And just as soon as she stops getting into new trouble, he can leave her alone and get back to his peaceful, solitary life. At least that's the plan until the trouble turns to real danger. Things We Never Got Over, the new book by best-selling author Lucy Score. An Innocent Client, the first book in the Joe Dillard legal thriller series. A preacher is found brutally murdered in a Tennessee motel room. A beautiful, mysterious young girl is accused. In this best-selling debut, criminal defense lawyer Joe Dillard has become jaded over the years as he's tried to balance his career against his conscience. Savvy but cynical, Dillard wants to quit doing criminal defense, but he can't resist the chance to represent someone who might actually be innocent. His drug-addicted sister has just been released from prison and his mother is succumbing to Alzheimer's. But Dillard's commitment to the case never wavers despite the personal troubles and professional demands that threaten to destroy him. Chosen by BookBub readers as one of the top 100 crime novels of all time, get started on this great series with an innocent client where it all started. Read for free with Kindle Unlimited or buy it in paperback or audiobook. An Innocent Client by Scott Pratt. So after publishing the two memoirs, um, you now turn your eye toward uh, fiction. And A Train to Moscow is your first 
um, novel, your first work of fiction, um, I often wonder uh, if writing fiction is easier or harder than writing memoir. And 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 what I mean by that is that you know um, making up a story about uh, fictional characters uh, sometimes can can seem on the surface like it's easier because you can just make them up and and you don't have any. Uh, personal connection to them, uh, whereas writing memoir, you know, forces you to do the work of, you know, the the the, the illustration you had of the uh, of the metal detector is 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 fascinating. I love that because, uh, you know, it forces you to to dig deep where those hot spots are, um, and you know, sometimes digging deep into our own life and experiences is. Uh, uncomfortable and uh, you know that's one of the great things about memoirs we get to go on these journeys of uncomfortable discoveries you know with people um but um you know you also are um you know the the benefit of memoir is that you don't know anyone better than you know yourself and and uh you know so is is writing fiction easier or harder or is is that not even a fair comparison (laughs) That is, you know, I've been thinking of it uh, all this time since I started working on this novel. Um, and I think the reason I wanted to write a novel was, um, well, there were several reasons, and I'll, I'll go to them in a few minutes. But I think I, I completely exposed myself in the first two memoirs. <laughs> So there was, I'm sure that there are still things if 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 I wanted to, but but I I just wanted to um to try to try to make things up, and uh, as you say, making things up uh, could be easier, but it could also be more difficult. Um, and in fact, after the first memoir, after a mountain of crumbs. I had this novel in mind. I sort of, I had this idea, and I was going to work, start working on the novel. But there was so I received so many emails from the readers who asked me, "What happened to this girl after she came to the United States?" So they asked me to write a sequel, basically, and I just couldn't. I, I I succumbed to to their to to their wishes, so to speak, um, and I also wanted, of course, to explore this uh, the first years in the United States and the culture shock and 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 you know all that. Um, so so I went. I, I started writing the first me- the second memoir almost um, uh, well willingly, of course, but it wasn't the original plan. And then when the second memoir was written, then I still had that idea for a novel, um, and I did want to to write this novel. I, I the idea came from family history, but also from my sister's acting career. Um, my sister was a prominent actress in Russia, and just just uh, as the protagonist of this novel. Sasha. Uh, my sister was as stubborn as, as Sasha and, <laughs> and, and just as talented. Um, she's my older sister. She's, uh, she's, she's, still, she's still alive, so I'm using the present tense. But she was an actress in Russia. She's no longer an actress. She lives in gotcha. this country now. 
Um, but she's she's 13 years old, older than me. And when I was growing up, she was already an adult and she was an actress. So and I was a teenager. I was extremely envious, of course, and jealous of her. And I wanted to be an actress myself. And I spent um, a lot of time in the back, backstage in her dressing room, back, backstage um where in the theater, repertory theater, where she worked. Um, and I was fascinated with the process of acting. I was fascinated with, with the theater, with this transformation, with um, the truth that the actors looked for. And the truth, that truth, the truth of art was juxtaposed to the lies of our everyday existence because we lived in, you know, in a dictatorship in the Soviet regime where everything that the government told us was a lie. And everyone knew that, including the government, <laughs> um, but they kept lying to us anyway. Uh, it was this very schizophrenic existence. We sort of, you know, you had to split your soul uh, in half. One half was for your close friends and family where you could tell the truth and the other half was for you know at work for for everyone else people you didn't know well you pretended that everything was fine and of course everyone knew that nothing was fine you know you pretended that we had um, enough food and there was everything you know where we're marching toward the bright future of communism while in reality everyone saw that there was nothing bright and there was no future <laughs> Um, so that um, th that conflict was always present in our lives, the truth of art, the lives of everyday life. And that's what what I wanted to explore. So I that that's sort of the, the basis for this novel, the idea of the novel that I wanted to write. It was my sister's acting career and it was the family history um the novel is set during and after World War II. And in Russia, World War II is called the Great Patriotic War. And it was, it's the glue, really. The war is still the glue that has held the country together because one in every seven Russians was killed in the war, was killed wow. by the enemy. The loss of life was, was, um, was just immense. And um, it affected every family. Every family lost someone in the war, including mine. Um, I had two uncles who I never met because they died before I was born. My mother's brothers, who who both died in the war. And one of them was an artist, just like the uncle in the novel. So a lot of it was based on family history. And the what if questions, of, of course, came to mind, you know, what if the real uncle died? But I, I thought, what if he didn't die? What if he survived? And, you know, and uh, the girl, the protagonist, Sasha, uh, who considered him her sort of a father figure, what if she finally connected with him? So, so that's I made that up. Yes, um, that was you know couldn't be done in a memoir form, 
But your question is very interesting. Is it is it more is it easier? Is it more difficult to write fiction than nonfiction? And is is it even a question, as you said? <laughs> um, when I when I wrote this novel and I submitted it to my agent, her response was, "This is not a novel. It's a memoir." <laughs> So the first, the draft that I submitted to her, which was not the first draft, of course, but it was for her, sure. was was not not fiction. It was not a novel. She said it's it's a memoir. You have to make it work as a novel, and she was very helpful. My agent was was just terrific. She she gave me advice on how to fix it and how you know what what I needed to do, and I did it. And it took another year to to introduce certain events to change the plot to complicate the plot to introduce more characters uh, who would allow certain things to happen in the plot and then finally after that year i resubmitted it to her and she accepted it and that's the novel that that was published um there there are certain things in fiction you know making things up could be difficult, but they're also liberating because you can make anything up. <laughs> While right. in a memoir, you have to stick to the real events. Of course, you in a memoir too, you make things up. You make up the dialogue, for example, because nobody remembers what people said exactly. But the line is set. the The line of events is set. While in fiction, it's it's all, it's all, you know, you make things up, but in this novel, in in my novel, A Train to Moscow, a lot of it is based on autobiographical things of my on my family history. Although I altered a lot of it too. Excuse me. Have you uh, have you shared the book with your sister? Oh yes, yes. My sister was um, a part actually of the writing process. She helped me a great deal with the acting, um, with the understanding of the acting process and the transformation that actors go through when they become someone else. Uh, she gave me a lot of her, her own stories, and some of them I put in the book, some some of the stories that worked. The childhood is, uh, the childhood of the main character in a provincial town is the childhood of, that my sister had more or less a lot of it is the same um so she get, she she was very helpful uh with her stories and with her um with giving me insight into the acting process which which i you know i i knew nothing about it um i i have no acting talent and i you know i could never become an actress but but i wanted to understand it and she was very helpful to to provide this understanding for me, Elena, as as someone who um, grew up in Russia and then came to the United States and and got uh, um, an an education, you know, in the in the realities of what American life is like, um, when when an American or you know someone in the Western world reads A Train to Moscow, what do you hope they see in this book that uh, that they couldn't see otherwise uh, because we haven't 
experienced, um, you know, what life in, in the Soviet Union was like. Um, what what do you what do you kind of hope the the reverse of your situation is like for American or Western readers? Hmm. Um, well, it's uh, I didn't know that I was writing historical fiction, but this is what it 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 is called. It's a historical yeah. uh, novel. Um, so my hope is that um, that American readers um, understand the time, the way that the war, you know, how what a loss of life it was for Russia. Um, but I also would like American readers to to feel viscerally what it was like to live in a totalitarian regime. And when when you could not, uh, when when you had to pretend, and this is this pretending game, as as I mentioned, that we all played, um, and the only truth that existed existed in the arts. It was acting was telling the truth. Theater was the truth as well as painting. The uncle was was an artist. Painting told the truth, but not, but the real life was based on a lie. The lie that we were told, the lie that we were forced to believe. Um, and, um, and how, you know, I hate to say how difficult it was. It wasn't difficult. It was just abnormal. It was it was this split, almost split schizophrenic personality that we all had, unfortunately, you know, living in 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 Soviet Russia. Um, but the only road to freedom was offered by the arts. And and that's that's if you know, if if I could if the readers could see that if I was able to say that in the book, I would I would be very happy. The book is A Train to Moscow. It is available everywhere now when you're hearing this, uh, whether you uh, like to, to shop at Amazon and uh, or uh, you know if you have a Kindle and, and that's your preferred way of reading, you can grab it uh, either in physical form or Kindle or audiobook uh, or run down to your local bookstore and support local booksellers uh, as well. A Train to Moscow came out yesterday when you're hearing this. Uh, Elena, I'm, I'm loving this book and, and recommending it to everyone. If people are just discovering you and want to dig into all the great stuff that you do, is there a place online they can connect with you? Uh, yes, I have a website. Uh, if you just put my name into Google, Elena Grokova, you, it will get you to the website. I'm also on Facebook and Twitter. Excellent. And well, oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, Facebook and Twitter. Great. We'll link up those places as well to make it easy for folks to find you. A train to Moscow. Go grab it today. Uh, Elena, thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. Thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. Now stay tuned for an audiobook excerpt from Richard Glebe's The Jason Crane Series. I'm melting! I'm melting! cried Joey. Take the picture already! He stood with one arm around the bronze waist of the bewitched tribute statue, Samantha Stevens, riding a broom across a crescent moon. Jason tried in vain to frame the shot without any tourists in it, but that was impossible. 
From all points of the compass, a merry horde had arrived for Salem's two-day summer psychic fair. All the commuter trains had burst open, like cornucopias filled beyond capacity, spilling endless fruits and nuts onto the red brick sidewalks of Essex Street. A vampiress in lavender shorts and feathered boots sold maple chocolate walnut fudge in front of the Witch City Tattoo Parlor. A near-naked gypsy in purple-green veils danced with a pheasant in her arms around a plug-in Hanukkah menorah. A fat man in a fetching blue jeans dress sold amethyst and citrine charm bracelets in front of Medusa Cafe, but his stand got knocked over by a one-armed crone driving a mobility scooter who sang, Choo-choo! as she passed, her stump on the wheel, her lipstick ghastly, her gnarled right hand raised in trailing plumes of noxious cigarette smoke. Chewbacca leapt out of her way and slapped sparks from his fur. He gave a disgruntled growl before going back to playing summer lovin' on his ukulele. The old one-armed dervish drove off, choo-choo, parting a crowd of wanderers, slack-jawed tourists with camera straps tight across their bellies, yellow-vested police on segways, elderly rollerbladers, face-painted infants and harried parents, and college girls. So many hot, hysterical college girls that you'd think somebody had napalmed a sorority house. Jason, are you deaf? Sorry. Jason raised the phone and took the shot. Joey inspected the photo and nodded in approval. Your turn. No, thanks. Do it, Shaggy. Don't make me hex you. Jason gave in and traded places. He put an arm around Samantha's metal back. Her bronze body had flushed in the afternoon sun, warm through his glove, but her eyes were weary. No, downright creepy. And her smile was forced, like a Disneyland princess who'd had her toe stomped. Say chowder, cried Joey, who'd been practicing his New England accent all morning. Come on, man. Say chowder. Fine, chowder. Joey got the shot, and Jason surrendered Samantha to a chubby kid wearing a Gandalf beard who climbed up to worship her bronze bosom.